No one promised you a rose garden. I don't know if you're old enough or have seen uh, the Marine Corps recruiting ad that has that caption on it. It's got a snarling drill instructor looking up at a timid recruit, and it says, no one promised you a rose garden. Well, oftentimes when we come to Christ, we get the idea that from now on, everything is going to be peachy. But that's rarely the case. You may have even been told by church leaders that God's will for you is that you are prosperous, that you are wealthy, and that a good God would not want to see you struggle at all. But I wonder what such people would say to a man like Athanasius. Now, if you've never heard of Athanasius, other than having a really sweet name that my wife stubbornly shoots down every time we have a new boy, (laughs) he was a church leader in the 3rd and 4th century who lived in North Africa. He was nicknamed by his opponents the Black Dwarf, but as Gonzalez, a church historian, says, he was a theological giant. He followed a man in ministry named Alexander of Alexandria. You can't make this up. Um, And Athanasius became bishop of Alexandria. But he is most well known for his rock-solid stance on the deity of Christ. Over a popular belief in the church in a sect known as the Arians. Athanasius preached. He wrote letters. He even once jumped in front of the Roman emperor's horse and grabbed the reins and pleaded with him for a case so that he could share with him what the Bible said about Jesus. From the Bible, Athanasius argued that just as God was responsible for our creation, man could not be responsible for recreation. So our redemption, our recreation, our saving from sin and death had to be of God. The God-man, Jesus, paid our debt. And this belief got him exiled from the Roman Empire, not once, not twice, but five times in his life. In fact, by the time the church had fully turned back to a high Christology of the Bible, Athanasius had already died. He didn't even get to see the fruit of his labor in the church at Rome. Closer to home for us, there's the Puritan and Baptist John Bunyan. Now, he lived in the 1600s. He was an Englishman during the Puritan movement. He was a former soldier who became a tinker, which is what we might call a repairman. So just kind of a a regular average guy. But as Spurgeon said, Charles Spurgeon, he bled Bible. He was a separatist preacher. He was a Baptist elder who would often preach in fields and preach in barns because it was illegal for him to meet in a church house. And Charles II, King of England, once asked the Oxford scholar and theological lion, John Owen, why he would want to go hear this simple tinker tinker preach. And Owen replied, May it please your majesty, if I could possess the tinker's ability to grip men's heart, I would gladly give up all of my learning. Well, why do I mention Bunyan? Because of the Act of Uniformity, which was an act passed in England during that time, Anyone not ordained by the state church could not preach. In fact, anyone who did not get in line with the state church was expelled. So much so that Baptists couldn't even bury their dead. They weren't allowed to bury their dead. Uh, There's an interesting story one time of some um, Baptist guys going out and burying a dead brother in the street just to prove a point because they had no cemeteries. Bunyan was arrested one day for preaching in a barn. In fact, they were laying in wait for him. He opened his Bible and read one verse, and people came out and seized him and put him in prison. He spent a total of 12 years in prison. 
But the interesting fact is, is that he could have walked out any time. He just had to say that he would stop preaching. But Bunyan knew that he was called by God to preach. He took seriously this calling, um, and he paid dearly for it. He had four kids. One of his daughters was blind um, and a wife, and they had to make shoelaces and different things to sell just to buy bread to feed the family. One commentator or one historian writes that, however, Bunyan's tongue was silent. God used this time to unleash Bunyan's pen. And if you've ever heard of the book, The Pilgrim's Progress, he wrote it. Next to the Bible, it is the best-selling Christian book out there and has been translated into, I don't know how many different languages. You can find copies of Pilgrim's Progress in Asia. Finally, what would the prosperity preachers say to the Apostle Paul? or any of the apostles, for that matter. Thinking about Paul, imagine how he was seen in a first century context. Now, we used to be, we're getting away from it, a guilt culture in that you had to be proven guilty if, you know, before we would think ill of you or whatever. But they were a shame-honor culture where public opinion was everything. And take, for instance, the Corinthians. What are the things that they valued? They valued power. They valued beauty. They valued rhetoric. They valued wealth. And Paul always seemed to be in jail or getting beat up or stoned or whipped or shipwrecked. So how would he have been seen by this first century culture? It doesn't make any sense from that worldview. If they are God's chosen people, why don't they have beachside villas? Why are they always getting crucified and beheaded? Why are the major biographies of major figures in church history riddled with controversy and persecution? Why was our Savior persecuted and crucified? Maybe the apostles should have been better organizers. Maybe they should have formed some sort of army or movement to take over their rights. They should have had some protests, maybe some small local government takeovers. So the question I would like to answer today is, how should we as Christians react to persecution? How should we as Christians respond to the government? Continuing in 1 Peter, the marrow of Christian faith, written to a persecuted and insignificant, in the world's view, um, first century church. So far we have learned that Christ is the chosen cornerstone, that salvation is all the work of the triune God, that we have no active part in our redemption except for the sin needed to pay for it. Life is like the grass of the field. It is short. God's written word is forever. We should crave it the same way that newborn babies crave milk. And persecution is coming. Count on it. It tests the genuineness of our faith. So, this morning, I would like to call your attention to 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 25. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 25. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it is the emperor as supreme or the governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. 
servants, or the word there is slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. But what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judged is justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Well, maybe you're thinking, Hold up. Obey, submit. Like, don't you know that we are Americans? Like, we march. We throw tea in harbors. Evidently, we take over entire city blocks and call it a sovereign country. But we demand our rights. We're kind of known for rebelling. It's what we do. Well, the sovereign creator has adorned every aspect of the Christian's life. And in this text, we find four elements of Christian submission. First, we find Christians respect God-ordained authority. Christians are subject to God-ordained authority. Christians endure God-ordained suffering. And Christians follow the example of our God-ordained Lord, the God-man Jesus. Again, Christians respect God-ordained authority. Christians are subject to God-ordained authority. Christians endure God-ordained suffering. And Christians follow the example of our God-ordained Lord, the God-man Jesus. First, Christians respect God-ordained authority. Even though we just read it, I'm going to read it again. If you'll look back at verse 13 with me. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and and to praise those who do good. A Christian should seek to obey the civil authorities as much as possible as it is God's will. Now, this command from Peter is a general truth. It's what we need to do in most situations. For the most part, governments exist to squash down and tamp down evil and maintain civil order. If you think about it, even the most unjust governments are still going to punish a murderer um, and tamp down riots. So we should be inclined to follow the rules, obey, submit to our local and national government. Fearing God does not rule out honoring the local emperor. Lately, if you turn on your Facebook, you'll see Christians that are ready to to raise up a riot, ready to get crazy. But in New Testament ethics, being subject to civil authorities is central. We'll find this all throughout the New Testament. And To demonstrate that, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles over to Romans chapter 13. 
Romans 13. In Romans 13, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Rome, says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear his sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjugation, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, and attending to this very thing, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect whom respect is owed, honor whom honor is owed. So here we see all authority is from God, it's instituted by God. Whoever resists authority without biblical reason resists God. So we're to do what's right, pay our taxes, uh, pay our bills, be good citizens wherever we live. When Christians are good citizens, it is honorable in the eyes of those around us. And now, the apostles would have certainly known about bad rulers. Obviously, this is written in the context of persecution. Um, They would have known about the Old Testament, about Pharaoh, about Nebuchadnezzar, um, Herod Agrippa, and everything he did in the book of Acts. Um, However, even the most oppressive government still keeps some level of civil order. They are ordained by God. So do your best to honor God by submitting to them. However, governments do not outrank God. So Christians should disobey if commands contravene God's commands. We submit diaton Kyrian for the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, out of reverence for him. Our supreme authority is not the emperor, but it is God. And so we cannot go against God's will. We cannot honor the emperor and dishonor our God. One example of this is the emperor cult in the first century. So one of the major issues the church faced in the first century was that the emperor was a so-called divine power and that citizens were to place a pinch of incense on a flame to sacrifice for the emperor. Now, and this is one of the reasons, if you remember I talked about Polycarp and those guys, this is one of the reasons they were persecuted. Judaism, as an established religion in a a previous agreement, did not have to do the sacrifice, but Christians were considered a sect of Judaism that had been expelled. They had no agreement, and so we were called to pay homage to the emperor, and to fail to do so was seen as a sign of civil rebellion. But this is an example of legitimate disobedience. We cannot worship a false god to the glory of the one true and living God. And so in such cases, it is right and just for us to disobey. We do not submit to evil commands. An example of this is a fumier. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with fumier. It was something that took place in the 17th century in Japan to Christians um, that lived there. 
I'm, and tell a, I'm going to read a narrative here of a story of the Fumier. A man waits nervously in line to be called. When he hears his name, he steps forward, and he's watched closely by local government officials who have been sent down, oh, and capital officials who have been sent down for the occasion. In front of the man is a small bronzed image of Jesus Christ on a cross, and the man is told to stomp on it. If he does, it is a public declaration that he has given up his faith, and he will live to see another day. If he doesn't, he could face execution, crucifixion, or torture, forced into boiling hot springs, or suspended upside down in a pit of excrement. Any sign of hesitation could cost him his life. This practice of stepping on Christian images, known as a fumier, was widespread in the city of Nagasaki in the 17th century. It is estimated that around 2,000 Japanese Christians were executed, and many more denied the faith to avoid it. One of my ethics professors, Dr. Alan Branch at Midwestern, says that he believes the modern-day Fumier is the LGBTQ movement. When I, I told you guys before that I went on a New England study tour a year ago, and when we were in New England, we would meet with local church pastors, church planners, because New England is the most unchurched area of America. It is a hard and a dark area to be a pastor. And so lots of times those pastors heard a group of professors and seminarians are coming through, let's have lunch. And so we would eat with these guys, and they said it's really hard to minister here because there is such an LGBTQ movement that the first thing people will ask you when you say you're a pastor is, are you affirming? And if you say anything other than yes, it's, I have nothing to say with you, and they walk off. There may be coming a time where we are persecuted for not affirming stepping on the fumier. But we must still honor God in our refusal. Look with me at verses 15 through 16, back at 1 Peter chapter 2. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorant and foolish ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. We submit because it is God's will. It shows that we're not anarchists, but we are good citizens. It distinguishes the claim of the ignorant and those who claim that we are not good citizens by doing right. And submitting is just a part of being a Christian. If anyone has told you that being a Christian means you never have to submit, they have led you astray. Here are some other examples. In Luke 2, chapter 2, verse 51, Jesus submits to his earthly parents. And we read, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. 1 Peter 5, 5, a verse we'll get to in a few weeks. Young to old, likewise you who are younger, be subject to your elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Ephesians 5, 2, 4, wives to husband. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Again, no one is called to submit to that is illegal, that is immoral, or that is abusive, that which is abusive. And we are going to learn more about this next week. Basically, you do not have to submit to anything that the Bible teaches is wrong. However, humble submission to authority is part of being a Christian. 
And Peter is not just addressing our outward actions, but our inward motivations. There is a way of submitting, but still rebelling. We have been ransomed, so we do not seek the things our neighbors do. We do not submit out of weakness, but we submit out of reverence. Those who use their freedom for rebellion actually prove that they are not free. Because those who are truly free honor God with their freedom. Tom Schreiner writes, True liberty, according to the New Testament, means there is freedom to do what is right. Hence, only those who are slaves to God are genuinely free. Believers are called to live under God's lordship, obeying the government as God's servants. Think about like a foreign ambassador is one way I frame this up in my mind. If I were sent as a foreign ambassador to Egypt, there are laws there that I may not particularly agree with, but as an American in a foreign country, I'm going to obey those laws knowing that ultimately I'm honoring my own country. And as a Christian, there may be laws we don't agree with um, that or whatever, but ultimately we are honoring God by our actions. Look with me. Well, we cannot put all of our hope in the idea that our country will return to its former ways. Maybe it will. Maybe God will pour out his blessing on America and we will turn back. And I pray that we do. But the government may not always side with us as believers. However, we can try to live in a way in which non-believers have nothing bad to say about us. Look with me at verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. We have four commands in this verse. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. First, honor everyone. The imago Dei, the image of God. Every color, every gender, every background, in the womb or outside of the womb, all human beings bear the image of the one true and living God. Every ethnic background, every nationality, male or female, friends, there is no place for any prejudice within the church. But even those outside of the church, non-believers, we still treat them with respect because even in their rebellion, they still hold the image of God. Our culture, as you well know, is in turmoil across the board on this right now, both sides of the argument. And we as the church must be the light to a lost world. We cannot join in the secular narrative, but we must be a light to the world. If you're friends with me on Facebook, you know that I very much oppose some of the Marxist ideology that's seeping into the church over this, but we still have to be a light to the world and, and affirm that every human being is made in the image of God. We must speak out against any injustice or any racist racism from the Bible because the Bible does not teach that it's okay. Second, love the brotherhood. If you are born again, you are a child of God. You are part of this family, the church. Now, maybe you heard, as I did growing up, that all people are God's children. That's a secular philosophy. It's not what the Bible teaches. Um, if we look at First uh, John, I believe it is. Yeah, First John. It says that some of you are children of the devil. It's not something I heard growing up, but that's what John says. Only those of us who are in Christ are children of God. But John also tells us if you do not love your brother, then you are not in Christ. If you can hate your brother, if you can hate a fellow Christian, then you are not one. Love your brothers and sisters. We are pilgrims together, under persecution, together. 
And this is not just the Valentine's Day, Hallmark Channel, Christmas type of love, but this is true love. And part of speaking love, or part of loving, is speaking truth. If we do not lovingly call out sin, if we do not lovingly correct, hear me, we are loveless. Just as you would not let someone you love drink a glass of poison, it is not love to let your brothers and sisters live in sin or believe a false doctrine. As one pastor said, if you allow your brother to continue in error, you do not love them, you love yourself. Because you desire to be liked more than you desire that person to be right with God. You can call it unity if you want, but I agree with this pastor, I call it loveless. Second, fear God. The holy creator of the universe is not your homeboy. Fear God. He is holy. He is set apart. Do not trifle with the living God and do not trifle with his people. In contrast to fearing God, honor the emperor. Now, Tom Schreiner says that this is probably a swipe at the emperor cult that I mentioned earlier because you are to fear God, but honor the little g God emperor. We fear God, not man. We honor the emperor only because we fear the one true and living God. Now, Oswald Chambers once said, the remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Repeat that. Let that sink in. The remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you will fear everything else. What a word for us right now in our current situation. But I promise you that every one of us here struggle with this, myself included. And if you're thinking, I don't fear man, I don't care what other people think, um, let's run a little diagnostic test, courtesy of Mr. Ed Welch. Do you ever struggle with people-pleasing? Do you ever struggle with peer pressure? Do you ever struggle with trouble over saying no when you're overcommitted? Do you need your spouse to fill your love tank to operate daily? Do you experience love hunger? Do you ever feel that you may be exposed as an imposter? People are going to see through you. That someone will judge you by your pre-Christian past? Do you fear Facebook friend requests from people in your past? That they will bring up something about you and embarrass you, which leads to the second or the next. Are you easily embarrassed? Are you jealous of others? Are you jealous of the attention they get? Do other people drive your emotions or outlook each day? Do you struggle with vanity? Are you constantly checking your looks? Do you struggle with what they call vanity pounds? Not like being grossly overweight and needing to lose weight for health reasons, but just for looks sake. All of these issues at the most basic level are fearing man and not resting in God. Now, if you got through this list unscathed, friend, you are very sanctified, because I did not. I cannot read this list without being exposed in multiple areas. We will all struggle with the fear of man, but we must not be content. We must remind ourselves who we serve, and we must fight against the flesh. 1 Samuel 12 says, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Later in this letter, Peter is going to tell the church, hey, fear God 
don't fear people. Honor everyone. Love the brothers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And because of this fear of God, your desire to honor him, you must be subject to authority. And if you're thinking that first point was very long, they're not all equal. So it was the longest point. Second point, Christians are subject to God-ordained authority. Look with me at verse 18. Servants or slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but to the unjust. In the first century, a lot of the Christians were slaves. Now, Peter doesn't tell them to run, to run away, to resist, but to submit. Submit to the authority over them because God has ordained it. Now, some preachers that want to make this text more applicable will say, well, slavery back then, it was more like a vocation. It was more like your job. Not like the slavery we know. While their slavery was very different than the slavery we had here in America, it is by no means humane. So let's talk a little bit about first century slavery. In the first century, one in five people were a slave. There's even... um, a history book that says at one time in the government they voted on whether or not slaves should wear certain um, clothing so you could tell that they were a slave, but they decided against that because there were so many slaves they were afraid that they would rise up and take over. But slavery was a basic element of ancient society. They were used to it. It seems like horrendous to us, as it should, but back then it was just a part of life. Unlike American slavery, it was not limited to one ethnic background, Uh, A lot of people were slaves across all over um, different races and colors. And it was not just manual labor. So a lot of the slaves in that time period became slaves through warfare. So think, for instance, if Canada got rowdy and they decided they're going to come over here and take over Ketchikan, and then they take all of us and we all become slaves. Well, across the spectrum here, you have different skill sets, different um, abilities, and it wouldn't make sense to have all of us. I mean, a, a pastor obviously clearly is going to be on the road crew, but it wouldn't make sense to have all of us on the road crew. Um, if you were a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, a scholar, etc., etc., it wasn't profitable to have you in the mines where the life expectancy was very short. So a lot of the slaves were school teachers and instructors that watched kids. They were nannies. They would discipline the kids of the slave owners. But they still had no legal rights. They were still property. They could be killed without any um, repercussions. Um, It was not a humane system. And they did receive a small allowance, if some of them did, where you could save up your small allowance and buy your own freedom. But it was a rare thing. It was different, but not humane. So with that, we think, but Christians are against slavery. Why didn't the church protest? Does the Bible really support slavery? It's an important question for our time. Are Christians social revolutionaries? Well, I'm just going to read from Tom Schreiner. He's a professor of New Testament and theology at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and this is what he writes. New Testament writers were not social revolutionaries. They did not believe that overhauling social structures would transform culture. Their concern was the relationship of individuals to God, and they focused on the sin and rebellion of individuals against their creator. If enough individuals are transformed, of course, the society as a whole benefits. 
and the Christian faith begins to function as a leavening influence. We are keenly aware from history that Christians have too often failed to live righteously. And yet, we may fail to see that the Christian faith has also been a force for good on Western civilization. History demonstrates the impact of Christian faith on social structures. And one of the consequences is that under the Christian influence, slavery was eradicated. The church will always impact the culture around it, but the true church does not and will not take the crosshairs off of proclaiming the gospel and put them on any social issue. Again, the church will always impact the culture around it, but the true church does not and will not take the crosshairs off proclaiming the gospel and put them on any social issue, no matter how worthy. We can march until our legs fall off. God changes hearts. We can scream into a megaphone until we lose our voice, but God still changes hearts. Friends, my heart breaks when I see injustice. My heart breaks when I see racial discrimination. My heart breaks when I read and see pictures about abortion. But I'm not going to cast aside my Bible and stop preaching the gospel and pick up a sign. Because I know that the one who will change hearts is the one that must be proclaimed. When I see these things, I am reminded anew that we live in a fallen world. We live in a world where people are dead in sin from the fall. And their one and only hope is Jesus Christ. When I see Christians who are taking up arms in the social justice movement, they are vocally saying Jesus saves, he is all we need, but they are practically saying this is up to us. We have to do this. Proclaim the gospel. Be subject to the authorities over you. Do not organize a revolution when you see injustice, but proclaim the gospel. Honor God in this situation. Fear him. Listen to him. Read his word. The New Testament does not endorse slavery. If someone says that, you can heartily tell your coworkers and friends, no, the New Testament does not endorse slavery. But it does teach us how to live under its oppression. Third, Christians endure God-ordained suffering. Look with me at verses 19 through 20. 19 through 20. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good, and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. The slave model that Peter lays out is the one in which we should endure suffering. Now, I do not claim this to be easy or that I have perfected it, but it is what the Bible teaches. If a slave can submit to a harsh master, we can submit to our bosses. You will suffer unfairly if you work long enough. You may even suffer as a Christian if you refuse to do certain things or join in certain conversations in the workplace. But you need to endure suffering because you have been called to it. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 states, Give thanks in every situation because this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Whatever your situation, it is the will of God. He has ordained it. Now, like I said, I do not claim this is easier that I, or that I am good at it, but it is what the Bible teaches. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes, All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Peter says, If you are sin and are beaten for it, what credit is it 
And Paul says, you are not to suffer as a murderer. So in other words, if you suffer for pursuing a godly life and honoring God, that is commendable. But if we suffer for being a jerk while we're having our pity party, we shouldn't drag God into it because we are suffering on our own account. Verse 20 says, if you do good, suffer and endure, then it is a gracious thing in the sight of God. But why do we have to suffer at all? Point four, Christians follow the example of our God. Before we read the verses, I, um, like I mentioned, some preachers will try and compare first century slavery to our vocation to make it applicable, and I felt that tension. Matter of fact, when I started studying this, I kind of thought that's where I was going because I'd seen that before, but then I realized something. Peter's already done this for us. We don't have to force it on the text. He gives us the whole spectrum. So if you think about the lowest form of humanity, what do you think it would be? Well, slave. They don't have their own rights. They're owned by another person. But on the other end of the spectrum, what is the highest and the most perfect form of humanity? Well, it's Christ. He was the perfect humanity. He is what humanity was always meant to be because he served God. So if we have the lowest form of humanity suffering and we have the highest form of humanity suffering, like we are somewhere in that spectrum. Isaiah 53, I read it last week. I'm going to read it again because it is so good. Um, In Isaiah 53, we read, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried away our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sins. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. With this in mind, let's turn back and look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, For you were straying like sheep, and now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The eternal Son of God wrapped himself in flesh while not losing any of his divine attributes. A way to think of that is if a king over a a countryside were to put on the clothes of a beggar and walk the streets as a beggar, he is no less the king. And if he were to take off his beggarly clothes and stand up and the other beggars and the other people on the street were to recognize him, they would immediately fall on their faces because they know he is the king. He ate fish while upholding the universe as a member of the triune God. You ever think about that? Like people talk, you know, Scott and I were talking the other day about people ask if there's ever a rock that, you know, God can make you couldn't pick up and silliness like that. If you really want something to ponder, ponder the fact that God himself wrapped himself in flesh 
and upheld the universe while eating fish with men like you and I. Laying aside his divine right to be worshipped, he walked among us in the flesh and suffered in his humanity at the hands of men. He was abused, and he did not return abuse. And yet he was God. We must follow in his example. But while we follow in his example in suffering, we must recognize that his example is different. His suffering was unique. By his wounds, he paid the debt of our sin. He atoned for our sins. Colossians 3 states, he nailed them to the cross. I'm just going to read these verses from Colossians 3. And you who were dead in sins, in the trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Our suffering tests the genuineness of our faith and sanctifies us. It sets us apart. It helps us grow in holiness. His suffering saved us. Verse 24 says, He bore our sins upon the tree. When I hear people claim that they can do things that Jesus did, that they can own his divine attributes, friends, it brings up the same reflexes um, as when I was in the South if I came up on a dead, rotting skunk. It is the apex of rebellion to reach for God's glory. It is the essence of human depravity to claim you can be like God. Verse 25 says that you were sheep, sheep gone astray, and he is God. We are sheep. We return to the shepherd only by his grace and only by his mercy. Jesus Christ is the shepherd and overseer of the church. I am nothing but a weak and fallible under-shepherd. I do nothing but deliver his word. He is the shepherd of this church. He is the overseer of this church. The emperor, our president, our governors, our mayors, they are all weak and fallible men who will go to the grave and their plans will go with them. Even we who lead this church do our best to be in the word and to let the word drive us and we have plans, but our plans that are our plans will still go to the grave with us. But his plans will come to pass. Jesus rules the world. He is sovereign over every square inch. It is his church for his glory. Trust in Christ. He is the capital S shepherd. Are you one of his sheep? Do you know his voice? Are you currently straying? In this text, we have just seen what Christ has done for us, that he has laid aside our sins, that he has nailed them to the tree. Can you claim that today? Do you know the voice of the shepherd? Flee to him if you have not. Talk to me, and we will talk about what the Lord has done to you, done for you. Christians, respect God-ordained authority. They are subject to God-ordained authority. They endure God-ordained suffering. They follow the example of our God-ordained Lord, the God-man, Jesus. So if you're here and you are a Christian, what should you take away from a text like this. Well, first, understand that God and his providence has ordained all the rulers we have, even the ones we don't like. So we don't rebel because God has instituted these authorities. Still, we do not obey commands that are against God's word. In other words, we do not obey an unlawful order. 
Second, know that God is good and that our struggles test the genuineness of our faith and help us be more like Christ. His plan is not always that we have perfect health and a busting apart at the seams bank account. Far from being a good God that would go to any length to keep us from struggle, he is the good God. He is the sovereign God. He ordains the struggle to conform us to the image of his son. Friends, it is a heinous lie from the devil that tells you that if you have enough faith, you'll have a lot of money and never get sick. And what does that say about God? That God has all this blessing and he's like, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh, you got to have enough faith and then I'm going to release it. It's a heinous lie. Heinous. The struggle we go through is good because he disciplines us in the right frame of the word to be like his son. I think about, I don't know if this is a good illustration or not, but I thought about it just this morning. Um, When I went to live with my grandparents, uh, I didn't have a lot of work ethic. You know, I was coming out of a not-so-good household and to um, rural Georgia. And some of my friends got together and said, hey, this farmer needs people to come get up hay for a couple days. Do you want to go? And my grandmother called my granddad at work. He worked for the telephone company and asked. And she said he just chuckled and said, let him go. Because what I didn't realize at the time is that hard work, that sweating all day in August in Georgia and Alabama was good for me. I didn't realize it in the moment. I just wanted to be home after that. I was sorry that I had volunteered, but it was good for me. And so our struggle is good. Suffering is part of the Christian life. Also, pray for our leaders. Pray for them regularly. Pray for our president, whether you like him or not. Pray for our governor, whether you like him or not. Pray for our mayor, whether you like him or not. Pray for your pastor, whether you like him or not. Pray that God would give them wisdom. Pray that God would save them if they're not saved. And I know I linked pastor in that, but I mean, it's the truth. There's a guy named Richard Baxter that wrote a book called An Unconverted Ministry. Pray for your pastor. Pray that God would draw these people to himself, that he would give them wisdom. Desire good. Desire God's glory over your comfort. Friends, know that the triune God is sovereign. Submit to authority as to the Lord he has ordained it. That's why Athanasius and Bunyan and Paul so willingly spent their lives for the sake of the gospel. Because they knew that they served the one who holds all of time in his hand. Proclaim his truth. Turn to Christ. As we, as we close, I'm going to do things a little bit different. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, and if you would stand with me. Matthew chapter 6. And we are going together, I invite you to pray the Lord's Prayer with me, and then I'll close us at the end. <clears throat> Starting in verse 9, Matthew chapter 6. Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God, you are good. God, we do pray here that your will would be done. Your will, God, not ours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.